how did Uber penetrate a foreign country? Yeah. So one of the things, and I think, I, I really mm-hmm. do hope that somebody um, writes a book on, like, uh, literally writes a book on this someday. But I think one of the things that Uber did best was that they. If you're putting a little something in the coffee cup, what do you put in? Oh man, like there's this thing called uh, Amarula. It's kind of like this coffee liqueur. It's like brown, exactly right. Mm -hmm, It's mm -hmm. just like a nice buzz you get when you drink that, but still maintaining like social, you know, your awareness and everything is still on point. So I'll definitely put that in there. Goes well with like biscuits and everything. So it's mint. I actually never, I've never done that. Uh, So I'm trying to think what would you know. The Irish coffee, of course, like, you know, whiskey and, and coffee is, is probably pretty good if it's got a name. Um, my, my favorite uh, liqueur is something called Fernet, which is uh, Fernet Branca, originally from Italy, but really, really big in Argentina. So when I lived in Argentina, that was kind of the every single place had Fernet. So that is kind of my go-to. If I'm going to have a, uh, you know, just some Fernet with sparkling water is, is kind of the, my go-to. Got you. Okay. Oh. Yeah, you know, I like I like making drinks, Josh. So I'm gonna search up for net. Yeah, it's awesome, man. And it's actually it's funny because, you know, when I came back from Argentina, this was like 2014. Nobody knew what it was, and you know, the only place they really drink it that I've seen is in San Francisco. Like it's pretty big there, but um, mm-hmm. now it's it's you know, in a lot of these like trendy cocktail bars, you'll see it. So I'm sure there are some some good ones that uh, some good dr- drinks you can make with it. I hear that. I hear that. For me, oh, and you already know where I'm going with it, you know. So this is yeah, just spit it out. This man. is a uh, whiskey here called Cavi. Okay. Um, and Cavi is this amazing. Owen actually put me onto it, you know. Um, it says like a coffee infused whiskey, you know. So it's like a caramelized okay. whiskey um, with the coffee. It is to die for. It's actually Canadian too, you know. So. It's one of those, like, it's a hidden gem that, that I have mm-hmm. grown very fond of since Owen put me on, so. All right. Well, next time definitely. in Canada, I'll have, to, I'll have to find some. Most definitely. It's called Cavi, K-A-V-I. Yeah. yeah. Awesome, awesome. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Hustle Over Everything. This is the, sto- this is the podcast where you receive stories, tips, and tactics from entrepreneurs who have done it. I'll do it one more time. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Hustle Over Everything. This is the podcast where we receive stories, tips, and tactics from entrepreneurs who have done it. Today, we have a great guest. You know, um, I'm happy that we got to speak with him. We had a really good initial call, and I was really excited to bring him on, you know. Uh, we're going to talk today about mm. marketplaces and the business behind it. I'm sitting here with... Well, not sitting here in person. I'm sitting here virtually with Joshua Ford. So he is one of the head honchos, the CEO and founder of Hip Train. Uh, a little bit about him. He was an early employee and served for three years at, as head of global business development at Candid, a venture-backed company focused on making oral health care more accessible and affordable. He previously led strategic partnerships in Latin America for Uber. He also worked um, for the White House, FIFA, IBM, Endeavor, and The Gap. 
He has served on the Board of Trustees for Hobby, Hugh O'Brien's Youth Leadership, and a lot more, man. Honestly, I was, I'll spare you the details. Joshua, how you doing, man? Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good, man. I, I, you know, sometimes Mondays you, you got to slog through, but this one I was excited for, and um, I'm, I'm glad to be with you There's guys. the cherry on top, That's man, right. the podcast. You got to get through the rest of the day, and <laughs> if, if you can survive the rest of the day, you get to do a podcast with you two. So uh, it was good motivation. Most definitely, man. So, you know, when we talked to you, you know, I was really intrigued with your story. One, because, you know, you have a lot of experience in Latin America, for one. We were actually talking before the call on some of your favorite places, and I was telling you how I want, you want to go to El Salvador, you know what I'm saying, or, um, or Ecuador, and, and enjoy your time there. You know, talk to us a bit about your time in Latin America and how you got in there. Yeah, so... Um, I, I didn't have a passport until I was 18 years old, so I definitely did not grow up traveling around and, and seeing a lot of places. Um, but I was always intrigued by the world at large. Um, you know, I, I always wanted to learn Spanish. And so when I was 18, I had an opportunity to go to Ecuador and pretty much landed. I didn't know a single soul there, didn't really speak a single word, and lived there for a year. And, and this, was, this is going to make me sound old, but this is before... WhatsApp, uh, Facebook had just been created, right? So like nobody was really on it yet. So when you went somewhere, you were totally, like there was no Netflix that you were watching English in your room. Like you were totally immersed, uh, which was actually a, a you know, blessing in disguise, right? Like made my first couple of months there pretty hard, but um, mm -hmm. I, I learned Spanish. I fell in love with the people of, of Latin America, the culture, the different types of food. And, and obviously Latin America is a massive place, right? So even within Ecuador, there's different types of cultures and food groups and dialects, um, but really just said when I was 18, 19 years old, I want to have one foot in Latin America, one foot in, in the States uh, for the rest of my life. And so started mm -hmm. when I was 18, um, got to teach English in a couple schools down there, um, had a really cool opportunity to go play in a, uh, a semi-pro soccer league down there. And so just, just kind of lived it up as an 18-year-old, and then I came back to university um, and then pretty much right, went right back to Latin America and have been in and out of Latin America since then. Let's talk about soccer Damn, real close. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that, that piqued my right? interest. Semi-pro. Like, <laughs> where were you playing? Like, did you do D1? Yeah, so, uh, were your sprints for you in the Prem? Like, talk to yeah, me, man. Yeah, that would have been awesome, Owen. Um, so, it's funny. When you say that, people are like, oh, man, you must have been amazing. I was a very average or maybe slightly <laughs> above average high school player, right? So, okay. I played my whole life. I really liked it. Um, went to Ecuador to teach English. And... You know, mm -hmm. they really like soccer. I started playing in the street, like literally in the streets with people. Um, and then one day, like a guy was like, hey, I'm on this kind of feeder team to the pro league here. I think you're good enough. Do you want to come like kick it around with? And it wasn't like an official tryout yet. So I just kind of went and played and uh, ended up going and playing for a team called Talleres Unidas. And, you know, we played in this really old, old stadium. I think tickets were probably like maybe a dollar. Um, so it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't all that glamorous. There was definitely no, um, like I, I definitely in high school played at better fields than the than the field that I played on from from the home field. But uh, it was fun and it was a great way to learn, you know, to make friends and um, you know, especially when you can't speak the language. Soccer is really a universal language, right? So if you can play that, yeah. you can make friends. You can uh, <laughs> have something to do on the weekends because I, I really like just you know didn't speak enough, especially when I got there. Uh, so, and then of course, you know, the guys on the team are, are more than eager to teach you uh, 
some bad words and bad mm-hmm. phrases just to mess with you that you don't really <laughs> fully mm-hmm. understand yet. Most definitely, I hear that. They must have sent you to talk to some girl like, "Hey, go go tell her this." Oh, I think they did that all the time. And so I think the good part is my Spanish was so bad at that point that they probably didn't even understand what I was <laughs> what I was trying to say. So I was relatively saved from from too much embarrassment back then. How much money do you make as a semi-pro <laughs> soccer player? Like, yeah, break that down. Almost nothing. I think. Um, I think it was like 37 bucks maybe um per week Jesus. so i think it was like 30, yeah so it was like pretty much nothing uh, so you're definitely not supporting yourself you know you're, you're not able to do much with that and so um you know technically you're not a pro because you get paid to do it but uh it's mm-hmm. it's a far cry from from the premiership <laughs> in terms of paychecks yeah it sounds like it sounds like a glorified house yeah thing, it bro. pretty like, much is instead of giving you yeah. snacks they're giving you 37 well we, we got some snacks too that's like that's like transportation <laughs> yeah, well actually oh they, oh, they included yeah, snacks. Some snacks too but yeah you got some like you know we were sponsored by some like very local businesses so you got a little bit of like t-shirts and stuff from there and um but for me it was just mm-hmm. really it was a really like interesting group i was probably one of the youngest guys on the team um, but we had some ex-professional guys that had played in the Ecuadorian League, you know, who are the very talent. You know, they were like the 37-year-old grizzly veteran that, uh, you know, at that point was 20 years older than I was, right? So, which is pretty crazy to think about. But, um, so it was fun. It was, it was a really interesting experience and, um, you know, not, not what I had, had bargained for. I didn't go to Ecuador to go play. It was just a, an opportunity that literally started playing in the streets. Nice, man. Nice. So let's get into hip train, man. You know, platform for personal trainers, people to like do online training. How did this emerge, man? Like, were you into fitness yourself? And you're like, man, I I, I want to get a platform like this. How did this idea emerge? Yeah. Well, I, I definitely am personally into to fitness, um, and I've had trainers over the years and have kind of seen the impact that they can have. Um, but really, when when mm-hmm. COVID hit, as a, as someone who's an entrepreneur, I think whenever kind of big shifts happen, whether those are positive or negative shifts, entrepreneurs are on the lookout for opportunities, right? And so COVID for me yeah. was like, a, okay, so a lot has changed in this world. What the heck is going to happen? Like when the dust all settles, how does this all play out? And then how can I go build something um, that will be kind of where the world goes, right? And so one of the key takeaways that I had was just everybody's comfort with video conferencing. Right. So prior to the pandemic, you know, people had Zoom or Google Meets or FaceTime, but it wasn't something they did on a regular, regular basis. Right. And there were tons of people like I think my parents. Right. Like my mom, I don't think had ever done a FaceTime or Google Meet or Zoom prior to the pandemic. I don't think she like knew how to. Right. And then, you know, by middle of the pandemic, she's taking a cooking class in the kitchen with, you know, with her iPad. And, you know, she's FaceTiming us and, she, you know, her, her proficiency just dramatically changed. So I think we saw those macro tailwinds that, okay, people are starting to become more comfortable with video conferencing. Uh, And then, you know, obviously part of this is too, like the internet, right? And internet penetration across the world and high speed internet penetration across the world, um, high quality devices, right? Like we couldn't really do what we do at hip train five years ago, just due to the internet speeds and the level of devices. And so, all of those things helped us to say, okay, actually, we think that we can provide a top-notch consumer experience when the average distance between a member and a trainer 
is about 5,000 miles on our platform, right? So you're, 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 you're on a video conference really far away from who your trainer is. Um, so we, I guess we just kind of saw some of these macro trends. Um, and then we also saw on the kind of on the flip side that unfortunately we have some massive trends on, on health, right? And, and unfortunately those are really negative trends, right? So you have growing rates of obesity and morbid obesity, uh, diabetes, heart disease. Um, you know, if you look at a lot of the comorbidities with those who, who suffered the greatest with COVID, um, it was people who were, um, you know, had one of those issues or, uh, and so we started to say, okay, well, what, what's, what's lacking in the world? Like, what, what can we actually provide to the world? And, you know, I think for us, above everything else, what we want to do is we want to make personalized health affordable for people. We want to make it accessible for people. And we want to make it fun for people, right? Like, it, a lot of people just don't have fun going to a gym. But when you are working out with a trainer who knows you, who's worked with you for months, who can push you when you need to be pushed and pull back when, when you need some rest, um, there's something really powerful about that. That's a fact. That's a fact. Um, it's, it's tough, you know, because at one point, your mom had no idea about Zoom. And now Zoom is standard. If I was to send her a Hangouts link, she's like, Hangouts? Like, <laughs> Zoom is, like, the yeah. crux of what a lot of, like, our parents know and a lot of what, you know, everybody knows. Um, and now, let's take a step back a bit because before we get into marketplace conversations, I think that's, like, where we want to give the most value to our listeners. Uh, I'll have to talk about Uber and this should time out Uber because I think this also adds into the marketplace conversation, you know. Talk to us about your time at Uber, because you were there early, early. Yeah, I was there early-ish in Latin America, right? Like, the business mm -hmm. had been around for, mm -hmm. for a bit in the world, right? And we had mm -hmm. raised a lot of, you know, we had raised billions of dollars by that point. But, yeah, when I, um, you know, in Latin America, we were still, like, when I got there, we were still launching cities on a pretty regular basis. We um, launched Uber Eats while I was there. Um, and I was also there during the time that, you know, Travis Kalanick was kicked out of the company and... We didn't have a CEO, and then Dar was brought in. So it was a very interesting time, um, you know, at the top of the company as well and, and in the press, right? That was um, when Uber was really being beaten up for a lot of different things. And so um, really, really interesting time. You know, I worked with some incredible people, really learned what it meant to move quickly as a business and to scale. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of things that I took away of um, how to do things. And, you know, like anything, I think there are some things I took away with and said, okay, I don't want to do it that way, <laughs> right? And, and I don't think that was the right way. So I think, you know, you get kind of both of those at every single place you work at. How did Uber penetrate a foreign country? Yeah. So one of the things, and I think, I, I really mm -hmm. do hope that somebody um, writes a book on, like, uh, literally writes a book on this someday. But I think one of the things that Uber did best was that they decentralized most of their operations, right? And they empowered the people mm. wherever they are. Right. And so even down to like the city level, right, people were empowered to make it work, figure out how to get drivers onto the platform, figure out how to get riders onto the platform. And that was really the power of Uber success. You know, and of course, Uber had a lot of money. Right. So they were able to hire a lot of people. They were able to deploy a lot of dollars. And so when you couple this money and this decentralized approach, like if everything had to go through headquarters in San Francisco, Uber would never have been the business it is today. Right. But what they did was they found really mostly young, really hungry, 100% hungry people 
who wanted to go and just make a difference in the world and then gave them the money and the tools and the resources to do it uh, and then stayed out of their way, right? And it's a really good, for me, it was a really good kind of leadership lesson of um, if you want to run a really bureaucratic, you know, you can't do it like that, right? And so if you want to run smoothly and quickly, you've got to empower the people that you, that you bring onto the team and, you know, give them the resources. Mm -hmm. But a lot of it was just learning by, by failure, right? Like a lot, we all made a lot of mistakes, but we just kept, you know, we just kept running at the wall until it fell down. And if it took us eight times banging into the wall, it took us eight times. But we did that in, in really quick succession at Uber. Um, Uber, like, tests a lot of their stuff, like, in Toronto, right? Like, they, it's like the major testing platform for navigation, seeing how things are going to run smoothly. So going in, like, a Latin American country, it's a totally different culture, yeah. totally different navigation, rules, roads, uh, regulations. How did you test the efficiency of the product in a different market? Like where, yeah, I mean, no brainer, this thing works for someone wants to ride, yeah. someone wants to, you know, someone wants to make money off a ride. What are some things that, you know, you went, okay, this is, we know is right, but it ended up being wrong when you tried it out in Latin America. Yeah, it's a great question. And the list is very long, right? So there's a lot of things that we, we had to do mm -hmm. differently in Latin America. And like I said, Latin America is a really big place. And so, um, every single country or every single city had their own unique pieces to it, right? But, um, you know, I'll give you two kind of concrete examples. One is in Latin America, generally speaking, people don't have unlimited data plans, right? So mm -hmm. Uber obviously has an app on your phone on both the driver side and the rider side, and then eventually the eater side and the courier side um, eats up data, right? And so if you run out of data, what that means is you can't order an Uber or you can't drive on Uber, which is a game stopper, right? If that's going to be a real impediment. And so one of the things that we saw is, you know, around the 20th of the month, a huge drop off of people asking for rides. And that didn't make any sense, right? Until you kind of dug in and said, oh, wait a second, these people don't have data. They can't, they actually, the app doesn't work anymore, right? They can't use Instagram. They can't use Uber. They can't do any of that. And so one of the things we had to go do is negotiate with the telecom companies to, to make Uber, the Uber app, zero free rating, meaning that it did not take up data. Right. And so that would be, really? um, you know, like one of the big partnerships that was critical for the business. Right. So, you know, that's one example. Um, another really good one is, is our acceptance of cash. Right. So one of the kind of, I think one of the best things about Uber in the United States or in Canada is that it's so seamless. Right. And, you know, you don't need to like, you know, you, you don't need to like have, you know, it used to be that like calves would require cash. And so if you didn't have cash on you, be hard for you to get anywhere. The cool part about Uber was that it was all done via credit card in the app, just made it, you know, you just got out of the car when you were done, made it super, super seamless. The problem in Latin America is, you know, you've got 80% of the people don't have access to debit cards or credit cards, right? So that means that your addressable population is much, much smaller than people who would use it if they could use cash. And so we had to then go and um, enable that uh, as part of what we did. Man, that, that that's... That's insane. So basically, everyone could take cash essentially, which kind of changes the game for Uber because that's kind of not like not what people are used to. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and, and the other part, and like you know, what we didn't really see, or we didn't predict probably as well as we could have or should have, is well, if 80% of people use cash instead of credit card or debit card, how is Uber ever going to get that money? Like get their cut of their money, right? Because we were essentially relying on drivers to like to like give you back money, us, right? Yeah. <laughs> So you had to go and figure out, okay, like, 
can you know can they go to these locations and drop off money? Can they go to like a Seven Eleven and drop you know kind of like a drop it off there? And so you know it, it just is every single mm-hmm. market had its own unique things about it. Uh, and so again, I think one of the cool things that Uber did was just really empower people to figure it out. Okay, great, you have a problem, figure it out, right? And you know the other thing that I think Uber did really well is what we called playbooks internally. And so when you figure out a problem, you you essentially created a like a slide deck that was called a playbook, and you would kind of upload it into the kind of the main mainframe, if you want to call it that, of the company. Mm-hmm. So that way, other people could learn from that. So if someone else was in a different city, they could, oh, wait, I saw that they did this in Medellin, I'm going to do this in Santiago. Or I saw they did this in Dubai, and so I'm going to bring that to San Francisco, right? And so um, there was you know, a decent amount of knowledge sharing in that regard, too. Got it, got it, got it. Um, how did you acquire drivers? You know, because uh, was it just an advertising strategy or did you have to, like, figure that out? Like, because one thing with the marketplace, and we're going to get into is managing each side of the marketplace, right? So how did you acquire drivers? Yeah. So w- w- we did a lot of different things for drivers. And, again, part of this was regulatory. Part of this was just cultural. Um, but in Latin America, one of the key parts of acquiring drivers was setting up what we call green light hubs. And green lights were physical locations where drivers would come in, they would you know, upload their documents, get fingerprinted in the country they were required to fingerprint. Um, they would listen to like a lecture by, by an Uber employee talking about you know, h- how to use the app and, and you know, giving them that literacy on, on the technology side of things, answer any questions for them, and get them all, you know, and they would generally leave. The idea was that they would leave the green light hub and be ready to drive right that day. And so, um, but yeah, we would do advertisements and, in newspapers, you know, obviously we would, um, there was a lot of word of mouth and referrals, so we would provide referral bonuses for drivers, so if they got other drivers on the platform. Okay, the same um, kind of way. They would, they would get kind of paid. So some of the same mm-hmm. strategies we did on the rider side, we use on the driver side, but, uh, I, and I know we're going to get into this in depth, but ultimately um, the way that Uber ran it, and I think most marketplaces run it, is two entirely different teams. So you had a driver ops team and a rider ops team, and they were totally different teams. There was not a ton of crossover. Um, so totally different approaches on, on and, and you know, they had different types of people. You know, drivers were a certain type of person and riders were a different type of people. And so um, you had to build things and market at different channels depending on who you were looking for. Mm. Solid, solid stuff, man. So now getting into like now with this marketplace knowledge from building Uber, like you've seen it like firsthand in the nitty gritty of even like being there in the early days of Latin America. And now you're building Hip Train. Um, just for clarity uh, for the audience, like what is Hip Train? What does it do? And, uh, you know, who benefits from it? Sure. So Hip Train is a marketplace to better yourself. Right. So today we, we do mm-hmm. three things predominantly. We offer personal training, we offer yoga, and we offer meditation coaching. So all of those things are done one-on-one via video conference with a trained professional, right? So you sign up, you get paired with someone um, based on what your goals are, what you're, what you're looking for, um, based on any injuries that you may have. So we want to pair you with someone who has expertise in that area. Um, and then you're going to be with that person and have those sessions with the exact same person. So that's where it's a little bit different than Uber where you get a different driver each time. Mm-hmm. Under the hip train model, you actually work out with the same person each time, or you do meditation with the same coach each time. So you actually really build a relationship with that person, um, and that proves you know to be quite sticky, right? People really build that social relationship, which which you know decreases churn off the platform. So that's what we do. Um, all of our 
trainers are, are based throughout Latin America. Uh, they all speak English fluently. That's a requirement to be on the platform. But what it allows us to do is then offer um, really affordable price points for consumers. So for a 30-minute session, it's $7, 7 US dollars, um, which is you know far cheaper than anything else out there for a one-on-one -on -one live video conference. Yeah. Yeah, even like with Inkblot, right? Like if you try and use them, you know, at work we get them for like a discounted price just because we have a partnership with them. But that stuff can add up, right? Like over a week you're spending maybe like a hundred bucks with like a, a yeah. therapist. Um, I'm going to start taking advantage of like, you know, the free sessions that I have. But I can see like the sustainability of like maybe you might not have that disposable income to spend on a therapist even though you need it. Um, I think this might be like your core advantage is like you have this market of, of experts who can offer these services at like a cheaper rate just because of the economy yeah, that they're exactly in. Exactly right. And, and you, you hit on something that's really kind of near and dear to my heart, which is building things mm -hmm. for people of all income levels, right? Like what I mm -hmm. always tell people is we didn't invent personal training or one-on-one -on -one coaching, right? That's been around forever. Right? And if you're a billionaire or a multimillionaire or a famous movie star or a famous athlete or a CEO, you have access to those things, right? And it's a massive market. The problem is if you're a regular normal person, you just can't afford to do any of that on a regular basis, right? And so when we look at all this health data of why are we more unhealthy than we've ever been, well, I think a lot of it is that people need help with accountability. People need someone to be there with them. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the price points are just too darn high. And so that's where hip train comes in where we can lower that price point and make it accessible you know both my parents were teachers so everything that i build i kind of think through in the lens of, of them right like can they afford this is this something that can can slot into their budget you know oh and you, you might have to hop on hip train man you know because because i'm telling you i want that surfing turf a surfing you know alex and i have this uh <laughs> bet you know we're trying to get six pack abs by oh, december wow, right. 1st i have an I have an advantage over Alex just because I'm more uh, right. slimmer at this moment in time. But, uh, you know, I weigh like 208 right now. Alex is about 242. I'm trying to get to a buck right. 80, right. Josh, right? Chiseled, lean. I feel like I already have enough mass, but I'm already telling Alex, I'm like, bruv, like, you stand no chance. You know, I like talking yeah. shit to Alex just to get under his skin. <laughs> but he feels he'll like over, he'll, if he comes and beats me, this is like losing a 3-0 lead in a series. Like that's what it's gonna. And that's what's gonna like. feel like. This is be that's be very that's clear. What feel like. You know what I'm saying? And you know how hard it is for people to come down 3-0 and win the series. Like you might tie me, but I might just touch the finish line. So here's the you. thing: is that I've actually been fit before. You know, I've had like an eight pack mm -hmm. before. Like I'll, I'll never forget. One girl has saved me in her phone under eight pack Alex. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, some, some of the moments you'll never forget in your life. I don't know, random, but because of that, I've been through the valleys. I've been through the hills and the valleys of getting in shape. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, like I said, like he said, I was 242 the last time we counted. I'm 239 now. You get All what right. I'm saying? So, Damn. You, know, you know what I'm saying? I see. I, I still show you oh, love. For sure. I still show you for love. Sure. Even though, like, because I... I want you to win. I want you. I want you to like look like lean. You know, I was talking like, bro, Al, you have like the right uh, shoulder width. You have like the the back, bro. You just need to chop up that fat, bro. You need someone <laughs> melted away. You know, and you look and you look good. We we can't we can't go past our prime time, and not like see the best version yeah, that, of ourselves. That, 
That would be that's 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 a disservice of you manhood. Know what's funny, Owen, is I actually said that to a buddy of mine recently. Is you know we've probably got a couple more years left of just like prime, age, you know, prime age. Yeah. And then like yeah, you know, physically you just you just you know you can be in good shape, of course, but um, you know, and I even feel this now, like when I get injured or I have some like the recovery time mm-hmm. is much much longer, right? Um, you know, I need to stretch a lot more. I need to do my mobility workouts before I. You know, if I'm going to go play basketball or play soccer or something, you know, like I definitely need to like warm up properly, right? And if I don't, I'm going to yeah. be on the sidelines the next three weeks, right? So, um, I, I mm-hmm. definitely agree with that. Of you've got a finite time of uh, being young yeah. with a healthy body that you better take advantage of it. That's a fact. Because even like when you're ripped as an older guy, it's like you have like that yeah. saggy skin, <laughs> like you know you're even like chiseled. You have like maybe like your skin's looking older. Like it, it just doesn't hit the same. You know what I'm saying? So. I can't. I can't let these years go by like of of youth just elude me. <laughs> I feel you, man. See, this is the thing. I've already accomplished it. I got the picks. You know what I'm saying? I I've done He's it. Done but it but now it's your turn to join me. You know, uh, on the like the Olympic stage. <laughs> 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 you know what I'm saying? But uh, that's one thing I'm scared about, man. You have muscle memory. You know how to get there. I've never, I've never seen it. Like I, w- mm-hmm. I was slim, like, but I didn't have abs. I was in D's yeah. or anything. But when I got jacked, like, I had like maybe a little baby yeah. fat, you know. So most definitely, right, we'll have to do another podcast. We'll see, and check we'll see. In, yeah. Yes, most, uh, most definitely. Five months, we'll check in how, how it's going. Exactly. So, so the loser mm-hmm. has to buy um, the other person a full course. No, though, no, both of us a full course meal. So that's why. I, my yeah. my my name that when I, when I talk about this is surf and turf, you know what I'm saying? Because that that's surf how I'm turf, gonna maybe. be, you know, dining out. But Josh, do you work out at all? Like like what's your what's your? Do you have a regiment? Talk to me. Yeah, I do. Yeah, so I um I try to bike. I try to get on the bike every mm-hmm. single day mm-hmm. uh, and bike fifteen mm-hmm. twenty miles. Um, and for me, it's it, you know, like I, you know, my body's somewhat used to it, but it, it's, it's, you know, I'm often reading on there or I'm watching the news or I'm watching sports or I'm, you know, sometimes answering emails. So, um, you know, it's kind of my guaranteed cardio. I do try to walk, you know, the good thing on New York is you do walk around a lot. And so I try to walk, you know, anywhere between five and 10 miles a day. So I try to, you know, sometimes I'll jump on a call and, and walk around and do that. And then, yeah, I, I lift weights and, um, about three times a week. And, um, I love boxing. I love, um, I love squash and tennis, and so I, I try to like play some sports as well because those for me are like I don't even think of them as working out, but obviously they, they are working out. And so, um, and then of course I, I do hip train too. So um, and so interestingly, like for me, hip trains really help me on the recovery stuff more than mm-hmm. you know I've kind of got my regimen of like okay I'm gonna lift these weights and I'm gonna do this workout. Mm-hmm. Um, hip train has really helped me with mobility, really helped me recover from some of the, like the minor injuries that I've had. Um, so it's much more about kind of prevention of injury and, and recovery than it is about, uh, you know, building muscle mass. But, you know, we have other people who their whole goal is to build muscle mass, right? And that's what they're doing and th- their workouts are, um, you know, one of the cool things about hip training is we've done, in our first year, we did over 14,000 sessions, right? And none of those sessions are exactly the same for anybody, right? All of them are adapted to the individual. So, you know, whether you are, looking to increase balance or flexibility or mobility or strength or speed or, you know, lose weight, gain weight, like you're going to have a different type of workout put together. And so for me, my focus right now is pretty much recovery and, um, you know, augmenting what I'm already doing in the gym. Uh, 
and, and on that part, man, like with with the platform, um, getting the new new degrees of it, like growing it, getting trainers, um, getting like clients, like maybe from North America to use these trainers. How did you acquire them? Like, what was your strategy when you're like, okay, we're gonna do this? You know, how long did you did it take for you to get trainers? And like, what was like that critical mass number that you needed to be like, okay, we need this is the ma- this is the number we need. And then once we do that, we can go and get uh, yeah. the clients. Like, what? How? What was your plan of attack? Yeah. There? So, uh, you know, like any business, you know, you know, like, I'll, I'll take a step back. Every entrepreneur has a bunch of ideas, right? Some of them are good ideas, some of them are horrible ideas, and probably most of them are somewhere in the middle, right? Trust and me. so my approach mm-hmm. is always just to like throw it out there into the wild, you know, see if it works before I do anything else. Like, I, I don't really like sitting in a room thinking and talking about something for months and months and months and then or, or writing a really long business plan because ultimately like that business plan the first day of actual business gets put in a shredder and it's gone mm-hmm. right so for me the first you know what we did at hip train was we literally placed a job like a job board posting for dra- trainers we got two trainers um we guaranteed both of them 500 bucks right and we just said hey we're gonna you know we're gonna pay you 500 bucks a month um because we didn't have, to your point, Owen, we didn't have any demand, right? We didn't have, any, like, we weren't named Hip Train. We didn't mm-hmm. have a website. Nobody knew. So we just wanted to see, like, could we get trainers and how much would it cost us and were they any good? And so we got our first two trainers. Turned out they were both pretty good. And people really liked them. We got our friends to take a couple sessions, you know, all for free. We, we weren't charging anybody. But um, then all of a sudden we were like, yeah, we want to start, like, can we, can we do another one? And, you know, can we keep working out with them? And so we saw, started to kind of see that. Um, and then, you know, we got our next couple of trainers same way through, through job boards. And then what started to happen was we started to kind of became, become a, a known entity, right? Like we had a website, um, a lot of the trainers referred other trainers, right? So it's generally a very small community. We got into like Facebook groups, we got into WhatsApp groups. And so we just started to like penetrate all these different arenas. So we actually have not spent a single dollar on acquisition of trainers since November of 2021. Wow. Um, so... We, we've wow. been able to kind of do it all through these kind of organic methods and scale, you know, like I said, we've done 14,000 sessions. So we've got a bunch of trainers on the platform now. Um, mm-hmm. And then of course, through that time, we also had to get smart as a business on how do we evaluate trainers, right? We are not um, mm-hmm. an open marketplace where anybody can just sign up and, and start giving classes, right? So you've got to apply to be on the platform, uh, on hip train. You've got to, um, you know, submit a video of you speaking in English. You've got to show that you're a certified trainer. You then need to do four different sessions with different people to get passed through. Um, and so we want to make sure that if you're on the platform, we're really confident that you're an incredible trainer. Um, and then obviously, once they're on the platform, just like Uber, we have a five-star rating after every session. We have you know uh, member satisfaction surveys that go out. Um, we have some product testers who kind of are fake customers that take classes and give us give us feedback. Yeah. So we do a lot once you're even on the platform to ensure quality. Mm, interesting. Um, how much liability does like the, the, um, the people have to sign this, the customers that do have to sign like waivers and all that kind of stuff before they get started. Um, yeah. So as part of our policy, um, you know, it is our, in our terms of use. So mm-hmm. if you're going to sign up, you are, um, you know, saying that you, you are medically cleared to work out and, um, and, and all of that kind of legalese. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. I had a horror story happen um, working out virtually. I was trying to do a, a, a workout with my mom because uh, I was like, spending some time with her. 
um, during like a, you know, like a, you know, sometimes you guys go spend time with the fam type of days. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I was spending time with him. Like, All right, it's gonna work out, and why not? You know, and the the trainer wouldn't work out with me because I hadn't signed off um uh, on really? the whatever is you know i the paperwork yeah, yeah. right so yeah. so like he starts the session and is like well i have an hour so you have to like the, the clock's already running but you got to go sign these pa- this paperwork and i'm like oh okay cool so then i go and i e-sign it and then send it back and say, oh no i don't accept e-signs you need to sign physically print it out sign it and send it back to me in order for me to sign it. And it was like multiple sheets of paper. So like by the time I had done that, half an hour had gone by because I had to like physically print out each one. Yeah, yeah. You know the what I'm saying? Gone. I'm like, bro. Yeah. So we should try to get into it. The yeah, gas like, gone. oh my God. Yo, I hated it. And then, and then he yeah. saw how he had the attitude about it. He was like, well, sorry, I can't work out with you until this is how I'm like, bro, this is just one workout, man. Like, chill. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. that, and he's taking attitude. Yeah. You know what I did? I don't even lie to you. I slammed the laptop on him because so I was like, <laughs> "Nah, you're not it." You know, one of those ones, yeah. man. But oh, man. yeah, go ahead. No, I mean, I think that like ultimately, like our job as hip trainers is to make it as seamless as possible for both sides, right? For our trainers uh, as well as our members, right? And so we, we, our whole kind of north star is how do you make this as seamless as you possibly can? Mm-hmm. That's a fact. Let's talk about marketplaces, man, because it's such an interesting business model um, when it comes to marketplaces. And a lot of our entrepreneurs do like run marketplaces. Some of my clients are marketplace owners, you know. Um, where do you see a lot of marketplace owners go wrong? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think I think one of the challenges with, with marketplaces is that you've got to run two businesses that are generally very different than one another you've got to run them at the, at the same pace or a similar pace for a very long time, right? So if you're undersupplied and you don't have anybody on the supply side, your demand will get fed up and leave, right? And you'll be in trouble on the customer side. If you have way too many customers and not enough supply, same like, or, or you have too much supply and not enough customers, same thing, mm-hmm. right? Like your supply is going to be like, okay, there's no work here. I'm going to leave, right? And so if you think about this, we'll, we'll use the Uber example, right? So if you open up the Uber app, and it's like, hey, uh, the next Uber is in 25 minutes because that's the availability. That means that you're very under, as a city or as a local area, they're undersupplied. Right? They have too few train, uh, too too few drivers, mm-hmm. right? And so, one of the hard parts about marketplaces is only focus. Like, and where I think people make mistakes is sometimes only focusing on one side, right? They build something, and generally it's on the customer side, right? So generally it's on the demand side where people mm-hmm. focus on. Um, and so everything that they're thinking about, everything they're building is customer-facing, demand-side things. And they let their supply figure it out, right? And then what ends up happening is their supply actually goes away, right? If you don't have any supply, then your demand's not happy. And so I think really understanding and, and taking care of both sides of the marketplace. And I think from like an ideation perspective, like when you're just thinking, is this a good idea or not a good idea? I think you need to make sure that you are solving a problem on both sides of the marketplace, Right? So a lot of people will create marketplaces and will 100% solve a problem for one side of the marketplace. Mm. But, the other, but the problem they have is on the other side of the marketplace, there isn't a problem that they're solving mm. or they don't have the solution to the problem that they have. So you've got to be able to create kind of like, okay, here's the broad problem. Here's how it affects the supply side. Here's how it affects the demand side. And then go from, and, and then build a solution that, that, that kind of 
fixes both of them and puts it all together. Gotcha. So like, you know, your marketplace is like, I'm working with the same client over and over again. So I get that repeat process. I build that yeah. trust. Of course, this creeps into a lot of people who are providing services in the marketplace to avoid the take rate fees or from hip train, yeah. they might go out of the platform to say, you know what, all we need is video to really, you know, conduct this service. How do you hedge against that to keep them within the platform? So like, you know, your customers are using them because they're like, ah, oh, you know, I don't want to keep signing up yeah. on this hip train app. Let me just send you a zoom link. How do you hedge against that as a marketplace founder? Yeah, it, this is another huge, huge problem that marketplaces have is mm -hmm. um, disintermediation, right? And going off platform. What was that so called? So hip train, uh, disintermediation. This. So pretty much like okay. really fancy word for just taking out the middleman uh, essentially is what that means, okay. right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, so they cut out the marketplace. And so, and this happens a lot in the physical world, right? So for example, you find someone to mow your lawn, right? And that person's literally coming to your house and you say, okay, hey, I pay this platform 30 bucks for this person to mow my lawn. And you just say, hey, how much do you get paid? And they say, I don't know, I get paid 20 bucks. You're like, okay, great. I pay you 25 bucks, right? And so you save $5 from what you used to pay. That guy makes $5. Everybody's happy, right? So that happens absolutely a lot in the physical space. With HipTrain, because everything's virtual, um, you know, cash is impossible, right? Like there is no way to like give someone cash. And so then you have to figure out a way to, to send money internationally. And if anyone's ever tried to send money internationally, Got you know, massive amount of fees and yeah. all that. So one of like the beautiful things about HipTrain is because of the model that we use, it's actually pretty impossible to disintermediate, right? It, like you'll pay way more in the fees to send the money than you will for the actual class on HipTrain. So that's the number one blocker for us. Um, of, of people leaving us, you know, that people just can't leave off of the platform because they can't find a way to pay them. Um, and then the second part is just on the supply side, they don't have much of an incentive to do this because we give them a whole roster of clients, right? So they don't want to risk all of their clients mm. to make a dollar more, two dollars more from somebody, right? And they don't really want, mm -hmm. and this is where I kind of get into, you've got to have problems on both sides of the marketplace, right? So for hip train, the problem on the demand side is, really hard to find a, an affordable trainer. And that's the core thing that we that we kind of work on, right? Mm -hmm. On the supply side, what we work on is it's really hard for trainers to fill their entire day with work, right? Because people will work out in the morning before they go to work, mm -hmm. and they'll work out at night after they're done with work. But that means that you have eight, nine, 10 hours of the day that are relatively dead areas where they just can't make any money, right? Where you work for hip train, we actually, you know, we serve people across time zones, right? So when people are waking up in Toronto and people are waking up in Ottawa and people are waking up in Vancouver, those are all very, very different time zones, which allows our trainers to be able to fill, fill their calendars if that's what they're looking for. Um, so that's one of the things that we solve. And the second thing is they don't want to do the billing of clients. They don't want to do the scheduling, all the customer service. Like they just want to be personal trainers. And so what we're able to do is say, okay, all you're doing here on hip train is be a personal trainer. Hip train the business will take care of everything else. So the billing, the scheduling, the rescheduling, the customer service request, the technology, all of that is going to be hip train. And you just have to show up, click a button, and you start your, your job. Got you. You know what I always find is that like, the people, the uh, marketplaces that have physical inventory, 
are the ones that like I don't I don't know how they're still in business. Like the peer spaces, the gigsters. Like once I find the location, I'm cutting the middleman out almost every time. Do you find that too, yeah. Owen? I mean, if it's like a like a rental space for uh, like an office, I need a hot desk. It's hard to go to the guy who owns a hot desk and be like, "Yo, like, I'll give you, I'll just pay you directly, so you avoid it." But that guy might have multiple desks that he needs the platform to do it with. The way I see, like, you experience that leakage of like people leaving the platform is like, for example, if it's a, a local listing and you're selling it online, and you're like, "Okay, I live locally." I'm here in Toronto. I want to buy these shoes off of you. Um, instead of me paying you through the platform, I'll message you. Let's meet up at uh, Young Dundas Square, which Josh is like the, I guess, the New York, okay. the Times Square of Toronto, yeah. right? Let me go meet you there, right? So th- I can experience that with like a physical product if it's like one off. But if I'm like a regular seller, it's so hard to have that, uh, like, I'm going to leave everything and manage everyone through WhatsApp, uh, iMessenger, or Facebook chat. There's a lot of like fragments that just come in within the space that just cause a lot of friction, yeah. which incentivize you just to stay on the platform. Like, so it depends on the, the type of marketplace yeah. you have. Like, for example, like what you have, Josh, is okay, I'm serving these services. I have all these clients. I'm not going to take them all on Zoom and send them like a QuickBooks invoice yeah. because it's just going to be so cumbersome, yeah. you know? So um, that's where like I see, you know, and this week you get to different side of, types of marketplaces, right? Like you have like listing stuff, you have like an Uber type of thing or an Airbnb where you actually have a physical location, especially when you've built a reputation on Uber or Airbnb, why would you leave that, especially when they cover insurance for you in case your house gets trashed? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's a great point, Owen, is that like some of these platforms do have to think a little bit more creatively and say, okay, how do we layer Mm -hmm. on services that say, okay, well, you're protected, right? Like, you know, and I think you're right on insurance on both like Uber and and Airbnb, right? Where Mm -hmm. that's a massive piece of why, people don't go off platform is mm-hmm. they, they, they like the security of security it, right? Suit. As a guest, I like the security of it. As a rider, I like the security of it, right? If I just, you know, text a random person, they pick me up, like no one's tracking that, right? Where Uber is is obviously able to track that and, um, you know, if something does go wrong, there's recourse. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned that uh, you had network effects for trainers coming on the platform. Do you experience that for the customer side where I had an amazing experience. I'm going to share that with my friends and experience like something like where you have like, you know, like the viral coefficient as they call it. Right. Did you experience that within the, you know, customer side? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we still experience it um, today. So Mm -hmm. we we definitely, um, you know, it's one of our best growth channels. Right. And, um, you know, ultimately, especially in today's day and age, you see ads for everything, right? And, and everybody's ad is like, this is the thing that's going to change your life, whether that's a t-shirt, a new energy drink, uh, electric bike, uh, workout, whatever the heck it is, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Even entrepreneurship advice is yeah. like, read these 10 exactly. tips to change your yeah, business. Yeah, yeah. Like, man, I've been reading these since yeah. high school. Like, I don't need any yeah, more exactly, exactly. 10 tips to start a business. So what I've actually found, and I've done a lot of thinking about this just as an entrepreneur, but yeah. It's really hard to cut through the noise because people are saturated, right? Like they get literally like hundreds of these things a day where it just like doesn't really cut through. Where if a buddy of yours tells you about something, you obviously have trust in them, right? If Alex, you tell Owen, hey, you know, I'm down to 218 and Owen's like, what the hell have you been doing? And you're like, well, I got on this platform. Like it's almost guaranteed Owen's coming on the platform at least to check it out, right? Like you've piqued his interest. And so um, 
you know, we find that they are definitely, you know, our best acquisition channels are actually our own customers, which is, I think for entrepreneurs who are listening to this, it's a really good reminder that even early on, you know, obviously there are going to be like hiccups along the way, right? Your technology is going to break. There's going to be, you know, better things you can do on onboarding. You're going to make some mistakes, but making sure that you have a generally good consumer experience is really, really important because they are your billboards, mm-hmm. right? Like where they go out into the world and it's been crazy at hip train. Like we have several people who are, are Instagram influencers who we don't pay, but they just have found hip train on their own or through somebody else and are using it. And they'll, you know, post on Instagram or they'll tweet it and we'll get all these signups and be like, what happened? And it's just like literally just us accidentally, get, you know, like just doing a good job and then like accidentally getting a lot more customers. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, I'll never forget this moment. I was in the barbershop um, before when I, I used to do marketing for a local company, like a local restaurant. And I was in the barbershop um, getting my hair cut, of, of course. And the one of the, like, the other um, people next to the, my barber was like, yo, where are you going to eat? And he's like, oh, you know, I'm thinking about this one restaurant. You know, I got an ad for it. And I'm there right next to him. Oh, he got my ad. Hey, let's go. He, he got my ad. Looking pretty good. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And the guy says, oh, you know, I went there. I had the curry. It ran my belly. And from that moment, I go, well, mm. that's it. Yeah. You know? That's it. Yeah. You know? I had done my job. I had advertised. I, I got them in front of the right viewer. But the person-to-person interaction is always going to win. No matter what, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, yep. so it's, it's invaluable. Well, and, and just like, you, yeah, I just think that like, you just trust the people in your circle a lot more, right? Mm-hmm. So like everybody, like, and I think that's one of the things I've actually, speaking of influencers, I've seen is that, you know, in the beginning, influencers, I think really did like for businesses, they were really smart to work with because people trusted that they were going to like say things that were real. The problem now is that a lot, and it's not everybody, but a lot of influencers look at their page and it's all ads, mm-hmm. right? And so you say, okay, well, mm-hmm. how genuine is it? Like, are they actually fans of what they're, like, are they just, you know, are they just doing it because they get paid? And so it's really hard. Um, you know, if I walk around all day, or if I text you every day, Alex, and I'm like, hey, man, like, you should buy this thing. You should buy this thing. Like, eventually you're going to be like, all right, man, like, what? <laughs> like, stop bothering. Like, this is not true, mm-hmm. right? This is just, you are somehow profiting off of this. And so I think that, more and more people are going to be trying to figure out like trust like there's this new kind of it's not that new but like verified reviews right where people like you know they've bought this product on amazon and they're saying the real stuff so, right yeah. and it's like like trust pilot yeah exactly like trust pilots we're like okay actually yeah. this is a real thing that happened like we had the proof and you know i think the reason that that's happening is people really don't believe everything on the Facts, internet anymore. Yeah. Which is probably a good thing. Yeah. So it's funny you it's funny you bring that up. You are in the influencer mecca of the industry. Like yeah. fitness has the probably the most influencers you can think of, right? So what's your experience been like? Like I know you must have like uh, horror stories to, to great stories. It would be good to get your experience as a brand owner, you know, to talk about your experience with influencers. So um how's it been? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Um, you know, I think one of the other shifts that we've really seen is it used to be that influencers would post and they would get like a revenue share, right? So like if people click this link, mm-hmm. they get 10% or they get, you know, $10 for every single sign up, mm-hmm. right? And so if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And nobody, like, no one's really mad. It doesn't matter. Now, influencers have really changed 
how they monetize to say, okay, I have X number of followers. Every post is $500 or $5,000 or $50,000, right? Regardless of how it performs. And so for me, especially with a new company with limited budgets, it's really hard to work with influencers that are going to say, hey, you got to pay me $5,000 for me to post because I don't know if I'm going to get $5,000 back, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that that's one of the major changes I've seen over the last few years of um, of the influencer space. I think, but you're right though. Like fitness, obviously, is a massive one for influencers, which actually makes it kind of hard for Hip Train, right? Because a lot of them have their own little fitness programs that they've created, or they have worked with other people in the past. Um, and again, what we're really looking for are genuinely like real people, right? That are using the platform that really are going to speak credibly about it, um, and not people like we don't. A lot of people will like just have an influencer post and they've never used the product. Yeah, we don't like we definitely mm-hmm. do not do that. Um, j- just because, it, again, like it, it's just not authentic, and I think that um, people can see that. And I think you know consumers are, are smarter than we give them credit for, and they'll be able to see that like they don't they don't have a clue what this thing is. And so um, mm-hmm. you know even when, we've only paid a couple influencers just as test really, but. Um, one of the requirements is they actually had to do classes uh, on the pla- on how to go on the platform. Uh, as a test, you know, they really did not move the needle very mm. much, right? So they did a good job with with content, and obviously you can repurpose the content depending on what your you know depending on what the contract is. So I think we were relatively happy with the content, but yeah, we really didn't see a ton of people sign up and you know these massive spikes. Like we've seen. Um, we've seen that with some of the bigger influencers that have just kind of used the platform on their own. But, um, yeah, we, we really have not seen um, it work all that much for us. Mm. So, what, so what has been working best, aside from, of course, a good service? Like, you know, for, for the, yeah. for the uh, marketplace owner right now that's like, man, I want to grow my customer base. You know, what's been working for you? Yeah. Well, we're we're constantly in testing yeah. mode, right? So I would say that I actually don't know if there's one thing that I would say this worked, right? And like we have a, a check mark and we just go there and we do mm. that, right? We're constantly trying out different things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that can be working with employers to offer this as a perk to their employees. We've done that. Mm. That can be literally handing out brochures in a public area. We've done that a lot. That can be partnering with other companies to exchange emails. We've done that a lot. Um, it can be, you know, Facebook, Instagram, it can be TikTok, it can be, um, LinkedIn, right? So there's all these different types of like kind of things that we've tried. And ultimately I think even if you have success in a channel this week, it doesn't mean that you'll have success next week. week, Right. And I think that's one of the, like, you know, Alex, you know, this from market, your marketing background, but that's one of the hard parts about marketing is like, you can gain expertise, but so much of it is the content that you actually create and is that content right for this channel and are you targeting the right people and do those people actually convert and when they convert, how long do they stay on the platform and what does that LTV look like? So it's it's really kind of, um, and this is kind of the interesting part about marketing is it I think maybe prior or previously it was much more art than it was science and I think a lot of marketing has really science, become science, right? Where it's very, very numerical yeah. and very analytical. Uh, but you still need the good copy, right? And and the companies that have good copy or have really creative ads do cut through the noise, mm-hmm. right? And so you've got to kind of find people that can do both or create teams that have both talents on, on, on that team. Yeah. 
Josh, when you when we're talking about LTV here, and you know, looking at the concentration side of trainers on on the uh, on the training side, what percentage of like your trainers are driving like eighty percent of like the results of hip training? Like, you know, if we're looking at like the eighty twenty rule, yeah, um, there's significant amount of people who like carry the business. I, I could say that. Yeah. So what does that look like for hip training? Yeah, so we have a little bit of a different model because we pair the trainer with the student. So the member kind of signs in, signs up, lets mm -hmm. us know what they're looking for, the, the vibe that they're looking for, and then we pair them with the trainer we think is best for them, right? So part of that is who's available, and part of that is we've built out these dashboards that we can kind of see utilization rates, right? And so, um, you know, we've got, I don't know, maybe a dozen trainers that are, are kind of an upper echelon. And part of that though, is just that they offer, they either have a lot of specialties and certifications. So they're, they're good fits for a lot of people and they give us a lot of hours on the platform, right? So we've got some people who will say, Hey, I want to work 70 hours, right? So obviously if you have 70 hours worth of availability, there are going to be more slots for people to take, right? We have other people who say, Hey, I want to work five hours a week on the platform. And so they're not going to ever have that many customers just because they only do five hours. But on average, we see about uh, our trainers give about 40 hours of availability. So most of them give a pretty decent chunk of availability to us. Um, so to answer your question, we don't really have the dynamic where, you know, 20% of our, our trainers are doing 80% of the work because of the way that we kind of pair people and that we're, we're constantly looking at utilization rates across individuals that nobody is bogged down. Um, and, and conversely, yeah. nobody has like only one customer. Yeah, and I think that's the beauty of like hip train, right? Like when you're looking at predictable revenue, you're you're noticing that in subscription-based businesses. But if you can look at a given month, okay, we have this many bookings. This is our take rate. This is like how much like we can do in revenue. But like compared to other businesses like Uber, historically you can look at okay, at this times we peak in Toronto, King West. We know yeah. we can make this much money with this type of price hike. But um, for you, like I think you're in a unique business because you know this client has this many bookings on average a week. Yeah. We know like their sessions are this. So you can actually have a sustainable business model, but that's one of the things that's so hard about building a marketplace. It's so unsustainable. You can't predict how your revenue is going to come each and every single month. So I think that's one thing like a lot of uh, entrepreneurs got to start looking at. How can I really predict how my business is going to do this month based on how much supply I have, how much customers I have? Because that's what's gonna like define you from like becoming success over a sustained period of time, or just being like a one-hit wonder. You yeah. had a hot run for six months, everyone mm -hmm. got bored, yeah. and they just moved on <laughs> with their lives. Well, you're right though, and I think that that's that's one of the hardest parts mm -hmm. about about this whole game is you know people's boredom, people's attention span, mm -hmm. right? And so yeah. um, you either need to keep putting more people in, or you need to keep your people around longer, right? And mm -hmm. you know. It's, you know, any business book will tell you what you should really focus on is the customers you already have, right? Instead of acquiring new customers to kind of fill in the churn, you should try to do everything in po your power to, like, extend that LTV. What's, but, what's LTV um, real quick? Just so, just so we can... Uh, lifetime value. Perfect. Yeah, lifetime Continue. value. So, yeah. um, and, and what that means is just, like, how much are they going to spend as a customer on your platform, right? So if there are ways that you can have, um, you know, that you can do that, I... I i.e. selling different services, selling merchandise, um, increasing pricing. Those are all different ways to increase that LTV, right? And so ultimately, like, one of the core metrics that we have is 
is the LTV of a customer, right? Like how much do they spend on the platform? And, and again, if you can get one more month out of them, that increases the LTV, right? So part of it is retention, yeah. part of it's just like their average spend. Do you find, um, uh, one more question, do you find um, you're targeting a different age group for the person who's being trained? Because if you're a fit guy, you're on the go, like you like to be in the gym, especially like now we're back and open, right? Or are you targeting more of like the moms, the soccer moms who maybe don't want to leave the house, maybe they're embarrassed being in the gym? Like who is that ideal customer type that tends to stay longer? Because I can say I love to use hip train, but I love the feeling of getting the pump at the gym, of being around people, hearing the music, yeah, just yeah. gripping the iron like around the environment. Yeah. Who is that person that I was like, you know what, I'm, I don't like going to the gym. I'd rather just do these online workouts and hip train is for me. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Yeah, I do think you, you said something very astute, which is like, it's not for everybody, right? And I think that's, mm -hmm. that's something that I've had to learn as an entrepreneur because it kind of like breaks your heart to some extent, right? When you build something and like your best friend is like, ah, like it's cool, like not for me. Yeah. And you're like, what, like, it's not your audience. <laughs> what do you mean, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so what we have found is actually um, the people who, who actually find hip training to be the best for them are a little bit older. So one of our best performing demographics are 60 plus, right? Um, and if you think about everything you just said, Owen, it's exactly why, right? They don't feel comfortable in a gym with a lot of other people. They don't want to hear loud music, you know, for the most part, you know, around them. They don't need to, you know, want to be, you know, it's, maybe it's not inspiring to be around young people, like uh, other young people. It's actually like intimidating, right? They also have much more kind of set schedules, right? So they can commit to 7 a.m. Tuesday, Thursday, right? Because they're not going to have the same, you know, they didn't go out last night they or they didn't. Um, you know, they don't have flights that they're catching, so they have more predictability for, in terms of schedule. Um, and then I think also that, like, one of the benefits that we offer is that one-on-one -on -one touch, right? Like, the adaptability, like, it, it's adapted to you. So we have people who are in wheelchairs who are using hip train, and they, you know, they're able to do it, and the trainers just create different workouts for them, right? And so I think that's um, one of the things that we've really seen. It's, it's something that you need enough time as a company to understand, like, to run out and see who are your customers, but once you have that, it's a really, really valuable thing because then you build for that customer, right? And so we've kind of recently had this insight of, okay, this is the demographic that actually performs best for us. So what that means is now we need to go and build everything in that vein, right? Like what is someone who's in that demographic want and expect, and maybe even changing like what our Instagram looks like and who, you know, who are the people that we're putting on our Instagram to reflect the people that we actually want to become customers. Most definitely. Um, when it comes to LTV, you know, one thing that I find interesting are stores or marketplaces like StockX, right? Because yeah. StockX isn't something that you use on a consistent basis, like a Uber or HipTrain, where you could yeah. have a daily use of it, weekly use of it. You know, you might buy shoes once a month, twice, twice a month, twice a year, depending on who you are, right? So I can only imagine that they're demand would be lower than their supply right but i'd love to get your opinion on that what do you think about businesses that are product-based instead of service-based yeah well i mean there are some amazing product-based businesses out there but i think what you just said is spot on right the problem is is the engagement right like do people really come back but you know there are definitely some um that do right like um and they have stood the test of time and you know whether you look at like ebay or um 
you know, Poshmark is a good example, I think, of this one, too, where, you know, maybe people are still transacting on a regular, you know, somewhat regular basis, or like StubHub, right, like for, for tickets um, to, to sporting events or concerts. But I think the hard part is, is they need to continually spend money and, and do advertising to stay top mm-hmm. of mind, right, because even people who have used them, they need to keep reminding them, oh, you want to go to the Raptors game? Come get your ticket on StubHub, mm-hmm. right? Or, hey, you need to buy new shoes? Like, you know, do that on Poshmark, right? Um, and so I think that that's one of the challenges is you don't have that engagement. Like, for us at Hip Train, one of the things that we've really wanted, and when we look at the verticals that we add on to our core offering, we're looking for a repeat, like, weekly repeat uh, mm-hmm. businesses, right? So if you're going to meditate, you know, it's great to meditate anytime, but really if you want to make a change in your life, you've got to meditate on a regular basis, right? You can't just do it once and then never again and, and see massive results. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just super interesting, man. It's super interesting. Um, going on a little bit, um, how are you tracking the NPS from the customer side? Yeah, so we send out uh, an NPS survey every three months. Um, so we, we just send out, um, and NPS is, you know, net promoter score is a, is a really, really good metric, right. Of, um, you know, do people refer their friends, right. Or would they be willing to, to refer their friends now? So we definitely, you know, take, take that to heart and, and it's a really big thing of what we do at hip train. But I think that ultimately I'm a huge believer of, you know, if people will like it or not, because they actually do refer people. It's not hypothetical. They actually are doing it or they're not doing it. Right or they just stay around, right? So if you have really high retention and low churn, well, like, obviously you have a high NPS or they would just go somewhere else, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that, like, NPS is important, and it's very important when you talk to investors, and it's important, you know, to have as a North Star metric. But for me, I think I know when our NPS is high or when it's low based on how the actual, like, all these other pieces of the business are performing. Mm-hmm. Are you guys raising money or are you guys no. bootstrapped? Yeah, so we did raise money. Uh, we raised a pre-seed round. Um, we're talking to some investors now for our next round. Um, and, you know, w- while we're on the topic, I think there's both advantages and disadvantages to both, right? Um, and I would be quick to say, even though, you know, I've worked at VC-backed businesses, right? Uber, Candid, HipTrain, all marketplace businesses, all VC-backed businesses, it is definitely not the only way or the right way necessarily to build a business, Right. Um, there are massive advantages to bootstrapping, but you know, it's, it's completely up to you. And some businesses are better suited for bootstrapping than they are venture, um, and vice versa. And it's only been a few, I think like MailChimp. Yeah. yeah. When I, what else is there? Ca- Calendly. I was reading about, uh, Calendly today. Like, you know, that the founder is now a billionaire, you know? Yeah. So he built the app, like by taking two hundred care of his own savings, going to Ukraine and getting developers to build it for him and then coming back and selling the app and like, you know, getting customers like that, you know, like with the freemium model. So it was like crazy reading that Forbes article because he just said, you know, like we took an unconventional approach by raising, by not raising any money for the first couple of years. And that built us enough traction and have enough leverage to actually ask for a better term sheet than if we just went, okay, yeah, we have a freemium model. We're like early on, of course, they're going to see the upside. And like, if you're looking at the graph, like, okay, you're trending in the right direction. You just need to tap into enterprise clients and you're going to be good. So he was like, uh, he's a totally different entrepreneur, but you know, I think we need, and I was telling Alex this the other day, we need to get back to the basics of building a business. Like, you know, one plus one equals two, like this idea of like, yeah, let's yeah. build like this app, get many users and then find a way to make money out of it. Like 
you know, we're looking at business backwards. So it was good to see like a true bread entrepreneur. He had like four, five failures before Calendly. And, uh, you know, he did it the right way. Like yeah. as many entrepreneurs before the tech bubble came, get some money, find money to do yourself, get customers, charge them something. And then you can go raise some money when you're actually profitable. Yeah. 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 And I think that like, look, if, if you can, I'm a huge believer in getting it out there into the world and seeing mm-hmm. if it works or doesn't work, right? And there's no shame in having an idea, trying it out, and being like, okay, it's not the thing for me, it doesn't right? Work. It doesn't work, yeah. or, or I wasn't the right person to do it. And I think that's the other mm-hmm. thing is understanding, like, why are you the right person? To, like, what's the unique insight that you have, or what's the unique what? skill that you have that will make you the right leader of this business, right? I've, I've looked at some incredible business ideas that other people have had who have asked me to you know, come and be the CEO and, and kind of co-founder. And, and I said, no, because I, I just didn't think that I was the right person, right? Like, I think the idea is good mm-hmm. and, I, and, and some of them have really worked out, right? But I just wasn't the right person or wasn't at the right time for me to be a successful part of that. No, 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 that's very fair. Yeah. That's very fair. Working towards wrapping up, you know, um, for people that are operating marketplace businesses, SaaS businesses, you know, what advice do you have for them um, as they, you know, continue with their grind? Yeah. Well, number one, just stay in there, right? Like, it's it's a tough grind, and I have a massive amount of respect for anybody who's any type of entrepreneur, whether you sell apples on the side of the road or you have this massive tech business, like, um you know, I have a lot of respect for you. So, so hang in there. Um, I, I think number two, I think what I said earlier around marketplaces, like make sure you're solving problems on both sides of the marketplace, right? If you're only solving problems on one side of the marketplace, the other side won't work, right? And so you've got to figure out what is, what, what are the key challenges or problems that each party has? And generally they're different from one another, right? And so how are you going to be the one that solves them on both sides? Um, and that would be a really good barometer of like, is this a, you know, could this potentially work? And then, like I said, just get out there. Like, go put it into the wild. Don't spend tons of time on a business plan. Like, just try some things, test some things, mm-hmm. and then let the market dictate what you do, right? Like, um, I, I just think that, like, I could spend all day long in, in my office thinking about pricing, or I could just, like, go and try to charge people a certain amount and see if it works. And if it doesn't work, try a different amount and see if that works. And then, like, especially early on, just try different things and learn and mm-hmm. use everything. You know, I, I always tell people this, like my employees, that it's totally fine to fail, right? Like, it, in fact, like that's the story of entrepreneurship is one of failure, right? You just strike out a lot, and you're just kind of you, you're crossing things off the list of things that don't work until you finally get to something that does work, right? And so, failures actually have to be avoided. In, in some way, you actually want to you want to seek failure because you know it's the wrong way. It's kind of like if you're in a maze, right? If you go down the wrong path, like, oh, shit, dead end, that's fine. Like, that is a totally okay mm-hmm. outcome because you know that's not the right path anymore, right? So go go down a different path. Oh, shit, it's a dead end. Totally fine. Like, now you're down two of the possible six exits, right? Like, you got four left, yeah. right? And so I think sometimes people are scared to do that. But what I just tell people is do it and do it as quickly and as cheaply as possible, right? Like, mm-hmm. what you don't want to happen is pour, <laughs> pour a ton of money in and a ton of time and then end up at a dead end. Yeah, I like they say like the best businesses are the ones that either make someone money or save someone money. And I think hip train is hitting on yeah. both. Like you're making the trainers money and you're saving like your other side money. Like you cannot lose because it's like hitting both sides. So 
the value is definitely baked in for both parties who are using the platform. Yeah, and I will say, Owen, like we have found it easier on the de- on the de- uh, on the supply side of the marketplace, right? On mm-hmm. making money for people, and so one of the things that I've thought a lot about, just in full transparency here, is, yeah, if people can make money, they'll always get it. Like, why would they ever not work with you, right? And so if you, if entrepreneurs are out there listening to this and they're thinking about something, I would really recommend, like, how do you really solve, like, can you get people money, right? Like, can you get people jobs? Can you get people, like, because ultimately people always need those opportunities, right? So if you can provide the opportunity, like, you can provide the, the mechanism for that, um, you, you should have success. Now, obviously the devil's in the details and you got to figure out how to run the mm-hmm. business, but um, that insight of, okay, if I can make someone money, like, it, it should work. Like, hypothetically, your business should work. If you keep making people money, you're keeping a job. Simple as that. Exactly right. And so I think yeah. that, generally speaking, like, that is the, the kind of the, the formula for success here is um, how, how do you, you know, make people's lives easier. And I think that's, you know, one, one last kind of comment here is a lot of people, I don't know if you guys have heard this phrase, of like, are you building a vitamin or, or yes. Adam, right? Yes. Yep, 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 right? Yep. Like, and so the vitamins kind of like the nice to have, right? Even though I think vitamins are generally a good thing, you should take them. But like, is it a nice to have or is it something that like there's an acute pain and you solve that pain? And I think almost always the businesses that endure over time are actually solving an acute pain, right? We, we talk about Calendly. It's a nightmare to go back and forth with people on does this time work? Does that time work? Like you just spend so much time, you get frustrated, like it's, it kind of like tarnishes the actual medium, right? If you had this like arduous process. So like the idea of Calendly is such a good one to me, right? Where it's like, well, of course, like I don't want to, like I love when someone's like, oh yeah, just book me here and they just send me the link. Like that's the most efficient way to do it. And so I, I just think that like the more that you can find a really acute pain point and build some, some, some solution to it, the better you're going to have a uh, time of it. Beautifully said. That being said, ladies and gentlemen, actually no, let me take a step back. Where can people find you? Yeah, so you can, um, I'm on LinkedIn, um, so you can definitely find me on LinkedIn. Um, you can find Hip Train at hiptrain.com, so it's just H-I-P-T-R-A-I-N.com. Um, you can follow us on Instagram, Hip Train Fitness, um, and uh, that's, I think, all of our channels. Most definitely. With that being said, ladies and gentlemen, that wraps the podcast. The house is what you can control, so control your grind and control your life. I'm Alex. And I'm Owen Osinde. And I'm Josh Ford. And that's the show, y'all. Peace. (laughs) Peace out.